read from God's Word in the book of Acts, chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 26 to the end of the chapter, chapter verse 40. So Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Here Luke picks up in the continuation of Philip's ministry in Samaria. He's called to a new location, and we will have the familiar record of the Ethiopian eunuch and his salvation, his conversion. Acts 8, beginning in verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speakest the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities, till he came to Caesarea. Amen. May God bless the reading of his own word and the Dear congregation, in our study of the book of Acts, we arrive at the record of the first Gentile convert. 
in the series of firsts that we have found in Acts. Uh, recently, we've seen the first martyr, which led to the first general persecution of the church, which in turn led to the first missionary movement when the gospel message went from Judah, from Jerusalem, to Samaria. And now it enters its third phase, which is to the ends of the earth. Because with the single conversion of this man from the continent of Africa, he was known as the Ethiopian eunuch. And this was the ancient land of the Cushites, which was south of Egypt. And it was known in those days to be the very edge of the world. So with his salvation, the gospel arrives at the edge of that known world. And certainly we knew, no, there were people beyond that. But it was beginning. The gospel had gone from Judea to Samaria and was beginning to go to the ends of the earth. This is the first man that we have a record of from the continent of Africa, recorded in in history, who converted to Christianity. This is the first fruits of the Gentile converts. So the gospel is going further and further. And as it does, we, we are learning many precious lessons about the church, many precious, precious lessons about what it means to be a Christian. Um, this, is, this is a very good time to be in the book of Acts, because when we look at um, our days and we look at churches and um, neighboring churches and we, we do realize that there is a lack of understanding of what a church is. Even when we think of Christianity, what is it to be a Christian? And we're learning many things. We're learning how men and women become Christians. We are learning what the Christian message is and what it does to the life of the believer. We're going to see more of that even today. We, we see what the Christian church is and what it does That it meets to worship, that it has fellowship, that the ministry of the word is central, that it breaks bread among its members, that it reaches out to other portions of the world, that even when it goes into exile, it is still telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ and continues to minister. They went about everywhere, we've been reading, preaching the word preaching Christ, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Christ, and baptizing women, men and women. And they also did deeds of mercy. We've been seeing that, yes, because of the power that God gave the church in those beginning days, they were, they were able to do signs and wonders and miraculously heal people and powerfully deliver people that were possessed with demons. And that made people listen to what their message was. God was using that in a very, in a very um, 
strategic way, you could say, so that people would realize that the message they had was worth to be listened to because of the signs and wonders that they performed. But those signs and wonders um, went beyond the miraculous that that could be seen as miraculous in, in, in how we would see a miracle to, to those silent miracles that are miracles still because hearts are not bent into selling possessions and laying down at the feet of the apostles so that it could be used to help complete strangers. But that was also what was happening to the church. As people were being added and the needs were increasing, they were taking care of those who were in need. The need was so great There were so many people, they had to elect those seven deacons to serve tables, and Philip is one of them. And he goes beyond serving those tables where they gave physical bread to the needy, and the need of spiritual bread is so great, and Philip, with that that persecution, goes to Samaria, preaches the gospel, Multitudes there are saved. And now we begin where an angel speaks to Philip to go to, to, to the road that leads to Gaza and minister the gospel there. And he goes. This was a man that was chosen to, to serve the needy with physical needs. And he is now serving the needy with spiritual needs, which are always greater so the church is doing all of these things. We're, we're learning what the church does. And certainly if the church began doing those things in those days, it ought to continue doing those things. And we, we also see that God, through His gospel, through His Son, is saving people from all different places and even different kinds of people with this Ethiopian Eunuch. Remember that being a eunuch, you, you couldn't even participate fully into the temple worship. But that didn't mean that salvation wouldn't be for him. And this, this Ethiopian is welcomed into the bosom of the church. Um, there, in this new narrative, there, there are two truths that are impressed upon us. Now, not for the first time, really. Um, we see evidences of this before, but it is very, very emphatic in this one portion. It, it will even be our first point of the work of God. Uh, we, with, with the salvation of this man, we see that, that God employs his power from beginning to end. The, the church is not a human institution. It is a spiritual one. This is from from the beginning to the end in this whole portion. It is an angel that speaks to Philip. It is the Spirit who, who tells him to go near that chariot. And at the end, we find the Spirit miraculously taking Philip out of that whole narrative and location. There's a, there's a dramatic element of the hand of God in this portion. And, and, and if... Is harmonious with all the others. We do see God's hand in all the other portions. But, but you, just because we have this beginning and ending with the Spirit's command and the Spirit's sending Him to another location to minister, this is why our first point will be the, the work of God. But then we also see this, that clearly God is showing that Christianity is for the whole world. It is not just for the Jews it is not just for the Samaritans who were half Jews. 
we see now the first Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch. And so this is clearly the things that we are learning. And then one more thing by, by way of, of introduction. We have something very unique here. Um, we have the first record of an individual conversion. We have seen records of multitudes converting. Um, even as they arrive in Samaria, we don't hear numbers, but we do see that there's rejoicing in the whole city. And there are multitudes who come to see the healing and to be healed. And, and so many are the people who repent. When Peter preaches after Pentecost, it was 3,000 who repent. And we do hear the voices of some of those people. What must we do? But right now, we, we really have a back and forth. We have an individual asking questions. And we have the evangelist one-on-one speaking. And, and this is an encouragement. It shows that, that truly the, the evangelism is not just for those who would be preachers. It can be one-on-one evangelism. And this is the first case of a one-on-one evangelism. We, we did have the good example of the generosity of Barnabas. And then that was... Um, it showed a contrast with the, with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. And we just finished having a, an individual um, example of a false conversion with Simon Magus and the back and forth there between, Philip, or between Peter and Simon Magus. And now we will have an individual example of what certainly Scripture desires to leave attested that this is a true conversion. You see the spirits mandating um, God's hand so clearly directing everything. And so this is a, a, a new thing, an individual conversion. And it will be followed by two others that are individual as well. And two other conversions that are marked by the power of God. In chapter 9, it will be the conversion of of Paul, Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 10, it will be the conversion of Cornelius. Yes, it will include his whole household, but there will be that individual dealing with Cornelius, and he singled out individually. So Scripture has now before us three, three individual one-on-one conversions. So let us start looking at the work of God as we see this passage. And like I said, it's not that this is the first place that we see evidences of the work of God, but it is a place that we see it and that we should stop to, to consider this reality because this, this is something very, very important because we are living in days that have been embraced or people have embraced the whole mindset of humanism and the whole... Um, if there's a foundation to the whole humanistic philosophy is that this world is nothing but natural. That this world is simply organic. What you see is what is real and there is nothing beyond it. And people have been embracing that. It is a materialistic view of the world. It is a secular view of the world. And, and this view is really a revolution in a sense concerning thousands of years in the past 
And this is an irony because you would think that they have, in their minds, they feel we have evolved. And so now we know the spiritual does not exist. And it is actually a great lie that the world has entered into. And when we go back to even the man like this Ethiopian, he comes from the land of Cush, and they had their religion. And you go to Egypt, they had their religion. And you go to Egypt, they had their religion. And every surrounding area around Israel, they, they had the concept that was wrong in the false gods that they attained to. But they did know there was the spiritual. And this is what I mean about an irony. As men, in their minds, they think they evolved, they actually entered into a state of a lie. And they deny the spiritual. And when they do this, they actually prove to be less developed, less intelligent, less mature than these men and nations and peoples of old who at least had the good sense to understand there is a spiritual realm. They were dead scared of it. And that's why they went into all thousands of directions. This, this very man, Ethiopian, is one of them because he would have begun with his own religion and it got to a point where he realized, no, this is not it. And, and we, will, we will follow a little bit of his narrative in our second point. But see, this is very important to emphasize because we are living in a world where you are being told to completely forget the spiritual. Do not go there. If you read the humanist manifesto, it will even say that they think that if you speak in terms of judgment, in terms of heaven, and in terms of hell, they say it's a distraction. And people will not be good citizens of this world because he will be too concerned about what happens after life. And in their view, they're saying there's none of that anyway. It's a, la- it's a waste of time. But God's word reveals the truth. This world is not only natural, it is also spiritual. It is not only the things you see that are real. God's word even says that the things you don't see are more real. And they are more real because they are eternal. And the things that we do see, of course they are real, but they are less real in the sense that they will not last. We see this body, but it will be corrupted and buried. We don't see the soul, but it will never die. And the Bible reveals this to us. An angel of the Lord spake unto Philip. It's it's not the apostles coming to Philip. It is not this world that we can see that comes to Philip and says, Philip, we've heard about this chariot and this Ethiopian. Let's sit down and let's strategize. No, an angel of the Lord. And then when, when, when he goes in obedience to this angel, we see in, um, in verse 26 still, no, in verse um, 29, that the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. It, it's possible that in, in, in his arriving there, he, the last thing that he would imagine is, is who to approach in a moving chariot. And, and he's probably seeing the dignity and the royalty of this man and thinking, who is it that God wants me to speak to? And so the Spirit tells him, approach that chariot. 
Then we see the providence of God in this whole event, that, that he would have been sent by the angel in a desert road, and he meets with a man who is reading Scripture. And of all Scripture, he is reading Isaiah 53. And then you see God's mercy. You see, of course, the hand of God as he acts in the heart of this Ethiopian. You you wonder how many years he's been in this quest and at what time he became um, interested in the religion of the Jews. And, And that now as he's heading home, having possibly purchased at this one visit to Jerusalem a a copy of Isaiah. It must have been expensive, but he was there reading Isaiah in his chariot, and you see the mercy of God to bring an evangelist on his way. You wonder if this is what gave John Bunyan the idea to send evangelists in the way of Christian when Christian was so troubled about that baggage of sin that he carried and evangelist pointed him to the narrow gate. And this is what God did. He sent the evangelist and he sent the one to be evangelized and made that man be reading Isaiah 53. We we have the portions that that Luke narrates that he would have been hearing, but he would, of course, would have been reading a greater portion of that. And in God's mercy, when he preaches the gospel, we we hear the testimony of this um, Ethiopian man. When he sees water, he says, What hinders me to be baptized? Can I receive the sign of the covenant? Can I have that emblem of cleansing outside that Christ has done inside? The work of God. And and we, we need to understand that very possibly this is one of the greatest problems of humanity today. That they do not go beyond what is seen. And they erase everything that is spiritual. So that if you start evangelizing them, they are looking at you with glazed eyes if you're, as if you're from another world because in their concept you are. And it's a waste of time. Why would you tell me about religion if this world is not about anything spiritual? And that's why they don't understand the problems that they have because they think that they can be solved with physical and ideas and, and monetary means. When, when hearts need to be converted, when hearts need to know their God and their Creator. And so, the work of God. Let, let us pray, beloved, that our world will, will have a, a, a piercing of their hearts that there is a spiritual realm. And then with that concept, have a heart that's a little more open to hear the gospel, which is the only truth in the whole spiritual realm um, of what man can consider. There certainly are a lot of people who do believe in the spiritual realm, but they are how this Ethiopian was in in his past, going to false gods. But, But it is important to have at least a concept of the spiritual And our world has battled against that. But let us go to our second point and look now at the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, So we, we see that the angel came and told Philip to go. 
to this road toward Gaza in the desert area. He went in obedience and he saw a man, in verse 27, of Ethiopia, a eunuch. The first thing we, we can see is who he was. We, we will see three things about the Ethiopian eunuch, who he was and what his question was that led to the message that he heard, and then something about his conversion. So first of all, who he was. Well, he was of a great position. It says a great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Um, it is attested in history that in, in that land of Ethiopia, which, which would have been today's Sudan and Eritrea and Ethiopia together, um, which was also called in more ancient times the land of the Cushites, during that season it really was ruled by a series of queens under the title Candace. Just like you have pharaohs and you have Caesars in, in Ethiopia, you had Candace. And he was in charge of all her treasure. So he was the treasurer. He had that authority. He was very rich, very wealthy. We could say he was educated because he could read. He was able because he was a treasurer. And he was certainly a moral person because he could be trusted with all her treasure. Um, one commentator um, F.F. Bruce said, Most people traveled by foot. The prosperous people traveled by donkeys. Military generals would travel on horseback, but only chariots signaled great wealth. So this was like a royal entourage, and he's on his way back. You can imagine possibly others alongside with him or at least perhaps a driver. Those chariots were known to carry at least three people. So there was now room for Philip to come beside the Ethiopian. And we also know that he was very religious because it says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, just with that reality that he's coming from Jerusalem to worship and he's from Ethiopia, we, we, we can actually know a lot about him. There's some things we cannot be certain it's interesting how the commentaries are confused um, about whether could it be that he was someone from Jerusalem that migrated in those exiles of the past to Ethiopia. And he's actually a Jew, but being called an Ethiopian because of many generations in Ethiopia. It's, it's hard to believe that that would be the case because he's called an Ethiopian Jew. I mean, Ethiopian eunuch, excuse me. Um, no connections in that title with being of Israel. Um, other commentators do, do agree that, yes, he was clearly a Gentile. What, what we don't know for sure is among the Gentiles, there could be those who were complete proselytes, who were seen as Jews, but yet from the Gentile background. And there were those called God-fearing Gentiles who had not done all of the requirements to become a Jew, but were still devoted to the God of the Jews. Um, some do believe he was a proselyte. Others say, well, he couldn't be a proselyte because he was a eunuch and he wouldn't have been received to that high level. Um, it doesn't really matter at what level he was of Judaism. We do know he was this devout to travel 
what would have taken in those days close to five months to arrive at the temple and however close he could be to it. He couldn't enter the courts because he was a eunuch, but he could have gone to the synagogues and he could have worshipped from afar. And he was willing to do that and then travel back five more months. That's, that's a lot of religiosity. That, that is a commitment. That is a heart who is willing to truly seek. And he was seeking the true God. And this is what's so amazing. And this is, this is where we see a little bit of his history. If he was raised in Ethiopia, there were plenty of religious systems there and the gods of Ethiopia. And he would have, of course, had grown up with a certain allegiance to them. But what's clear is that somewhere along the line, he became completely um, dissatisfied with the direction of that religion. And yes, it could have been from exiles of, of Israel where he would have heard of the God of the Jews, that his heart was ignited with, that is the God I should pursue. And so we don't know how many other times he traveled. Could it be this was the first time? So we don't know those details. But we know he was a devout man seeking the true God. He was in many ways just like a Jew of those days who hadn't yet heard of Jesus or accepted him yet, but waiting for the Messiah. Even the question that he asks is connected to the Messiah. And yet he doesn't know that, yes, in Isaiah, it is a prophecy of the Messiah. So we know all of these things about this one man. Now, two points that are important to bring here. The very existence of this man coming from Ethiopia and welcome to whatever degree that was possible to worship and able to buy a copy of Isaiah. It shows that the Jews did evangelize. And we know Jesus even talks to the, to the Pharisees of how they did go far to proselyte others. So they were evangelists. They told people about their God. And as much as we hear of, of, of the disunities between Jew and Gentile, the Jews did welcome the Gentiles to become Jews or to become at least worshipers of the same God that they had to become a practicing Jew and, and we, we find this throughout scripture when, when Paul arrives in Thessalonica in Acts 17.4 we hear of the devout Greeks who consorted with Paul after they believed so it's, it's precious to think of this. We, we have to have this mind a little more open in terms of how the Jews were, that they were evangelists. They did welcome Gentiles who believed. Their animosity was more with Gentiles who would remain Gentiles. And then they felt they really should have nothing to do with them. But that didn't mean they didn't seek to communicate something of their law and of their God and of the coming Messiah that they were waiting for. And then it's also important to note this, that when we get to this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, what we have here is really fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment in that he was an Ethiopian and fulfillment in that he was a eunuch. And both prophecies are found in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 11 
easy passage to remember. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush. And that was the land of Ethiopia. And from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. So as there were exiles in all these places, they were also evangelizing. And you can imagine in God's mercy, he must have saved many, many people from these places who weren't Jews, but became proselyte Jews. And then there's another passage that speaks um, of God's mercy and grace to, to this Ethiopian eunuch. Um, it's in Isaiah 56, verses 3 and 5. I'll just read um, those three verses. Isaiah 56, verse 3, it says, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and of the daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And we don't know if he read that portion of Isaiah. But that was just a few chapters after where he was reading. So as we look at this eunuch, we have to think of, of these realities of who he was and, and all of these principles. But then, let's consider his, his conversion. And it was connected with his question. So... Well, actually, it starts with the question that Philip had. Um, in verse 30, <clears throat> when Philip was close to the chariot, he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? Now, as much as that, that's such a simple question, and it's a matter of fact, really what you have here is perhaps one of the best methods of evangelism. He asked a question that was related to the reality that that man was living. He didn't bring here something that would be a, a, a religious cliche and how to evangelize everyone that you would meet. No, he just met that man. He heard what he was reading. And Philip, of course, it could have been that the Lord inspired him to ask that question, but it was common sense to ask that question. He was reading this he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears. So he opened not his mouth. <clears throat> In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. <clears throat> and who shall declare his generation? And so Philip wondered, does he know who he's reading about? And you can imagine Philip's heart is full of Christ. It is full of the gospel. And he's thinking, this is a wonderful opportunity. Let me present to this man Christ, but let me ask him if he knows who he's talking about. The eunuch could have said, well, I've learned in Jerusalem that this might be the Messiah or that this was one of the Israelite kings who, who suffered. There were many views among the Jews of who that would have been. 
They didn't think very unanimously that that was the coming Messiah because it was all about suffering. It was all about sorrow. And in their view, remember this one reality. In the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about the second coming of the Messiah. And, and those were glorious. Those were full of majesty. And it spoke all about ruling. And so the Jews had kind of confused the two. They didn't understand there was a first coming and a second coming. And in the Jewish mind, all of those things that were glorious and all of those things about the second coming, they saw as in the first coming. And everything that spoke of suffering and everything that spoke of sorrow they thought it was really David talking about David or David talking about some other king who will suffer or other prophets who will suffer. They were also anointed ones. And so they didn't think of that as the Messiah. They thought it was some other anointed one like a king, a priest, or a prophet who would suffer in those ways. That was their way of dealing with it. Well, this is why... The apostles went everywhere saying, No, it behooved the Messiah to suffer. That, that was, in a sense, a key message of the newborn church was to show the Jews of the day that the Messiah they were all waiting for together was supposed to suffer. He was even supposed to suffer to the point of death. And the blessed thing was that he would resurrect Later would be all the magnificent coming that even now we're also waiting for. So he heard him reading about a suffering Savior, and he asked, do you know who you're reading about? Now, let's go back to the very passage that he was reading. I won't read now all of Isaiah 53. I know it's quite familiar in your mind, but I just want to read a few verses because it would show what... Philip would have done um, when, when the eunuch said that he, he cannot know unless he is helped. It says in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at that scripture and preached unto him Jesus. So if we go back to Isaiah 53, we, we know that what Philip would have said was, No, this man is not Isaiah. And it's not some other king that Israel had in the past. It is about a man who just recently died and arose from the grave. At one point, he would have spoken of the death and resurrection. But what we know then is that he would have said it is Jesus who would have been despised of men. He would be the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief that we read in verse 3 of chapter 53. And then he would have explained why he would suffer. And, and this is what's so powerful. Isaiah doesn't just say that this man would suffer so much. It does do that, but it clearly shows why. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him smitten, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Yes, this man is a man of sorrows, and this is why he will suffer. He will suffer because of us. And then you could still wonder, well, in what way is he suffering because of us? And verse 6 is the verse just before the passage that we have recorded in Acts. And verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. So he's pointing to our sins. And the Lord hath laid on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. So certainly Philip would have covered and expounded to this Ethiopian man that the reason this man is suffering, the reason he went to the slaughter dumb like a lamb, not speaking, silent. It's because he had our sins upon him. The iniquity of us all was laid upon him. And and this is what's emphatic. The whole reason this Ethiopian man went to Jerusalem was to see animals sacrificed. It said that he went to Jerusalem for to worship. And the only way you could worship was through the sacrifice of animals. Sheep and goats and doves and pigeons or oxen. And he would have understood. That was the ABC of the Israelites' religion. Our sins were forgiven because they were placed ceremonially upon that poor innocent animal and he died for me to live the iniquity of us all was laid upon this poor little lamb or this goat or this oxen every Israelite understand that basic element of Jewish religion the animal was wounded for our transgressions the animal was bruised the lamb would be that little lamb of sorrows and acquainted with grief And Philip would have said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore with your offerings because God sent His Son with His. And what you have to do is believe in Him and repent. We know Philip would have said these words because this is what he's been saying in Peter in all those sermons that we've been seeing in the past. It's always... Repent and believe. And the reason we know very clearly that he would have spoken of repentance is because repentance was always coupled with baptism. The reason you are baptized is because you are even confessing, I am a sinner who needs to be washed away. And I receive this water as a symbol that God in His grace forgives me. But I... There would be nothing, nothing to be forgiven for if I'm not willing to, to, to accuse myself, to confess my sin. So Philip would have said, you know, just like you went to Jerusalem because of your sins and you wanted a sacrifice to be done, well, Jesus is your sacrifice. So you confess directly to God and the God of heaven will forgive you because He sent you His Son. And it is precious that it is this very Ethiopian man who when he sees water, he says, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? 
Can I have the, the symbol of what you have just taught me? If, if what I need now is a washing of water, can I be baptized right here? And in verse 37, Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. That wasn't the moment that his sins were washed away, but that was the moment that he received the token that his sins were washed away because he believed in the Messiah. So we've seen the work of God. We've seen something of the Ethiopian eunuch. Let me go now to our third point, the result of the gospel. Because even as we're still speaking of the man, the Ethiopian, we see the results of the gospel in his life. But let's just speak in closing about this result of the gospel. You notice that there is a harmony here. What happened to the multitude of people in Samaria now happens in a single um, heart in the life of this Ethiopian. When, When we were reading about the Samaritans after many people had heard there and believed, um, we, we read in verse 8 of chapter 8, and there was great joy in that city. Now remember all those contexts that these were exiles who had arrived, but they are talking about Jesus. People are believing, and there's now great joy. And that joy probably more would be among the believers, uh, the, the, the new believers, and the, the, the arriving believers came with grief, but they have something of that joy communicated to them because they're seeing that in their suffering, others are being made saved. So there's great joy in that city. And now that the eunuch is saved, and notice there, there is an element here that could bring sorrow to the eunuch, Just like there was there, there could be a lot of sorrow in that city. A bunch of exiles arrive, all sorry and sad because they saw the destruction of their goods and they're being persecuted. It could have even contaminated the city and make everybody weep with those who weep. But it was the inverse because they brought Christ. So everybody was joyful. Now notice here, this Ethiopian eunuch, yes, he's saved, and that will be the whole basis of his joy, but his evangelist disappears. He's going to a land where there are no teachers. He will be the first evangelist to arrive there, and he's a newborn Christian. He's going farther and farther away from that place where everybody's gravitating to because they want to hear about Christ. Remember, everybody came and haven't left ever since Passover because they they want to be there at the foot of the apostles learning everything they can teach them. But the eunuch is going far from all of that. And you could imagine the sorrow in his heart. But instead... We read in verse 37, right after Philip is taken, it says the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Joy. Joy is marked here as a great mark of Christian life, of conversion. Joy. And it's not a joy that means that you can't weep anymore. You can imagine those people in Samaria are both weeping and rejoicing. And this eunuch is probably sad. He won't see Philip for more miles, but he's so thankful that he has a new heart. 
But we also see, and, and I'll end with this, we also see the result of the gospel still in the life of Philip. Um, <clears throat> the gospel isn't just, the result of the gospel is not just when you are converted, but all through your converted life. And, and we can just close with this sight of a man who just the other day was chosen as a deacon. He was busy helping those families, uh, the widows of the Greeks who, who had been being slighted, and he was serving tables, but the church is persecuted. He becomes the first missionary to the Samaritans. The angel comes and prompts him to go, and he goes in obedience, and he's there. The Spirit tells him what to do, and he does it in obedience. And then he evangelizes. And then at the end, the Spirit takes him. And look at verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus. That was a a, a city a few miles north of Gaza. That's where he reappears. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. And this will be the last we hear, hear of Philip's ministry other than only one other event where Paul arrives back into the coast of Israel and meets with Philip and his daughters, who are at that point prophetesses. And there's a very small little portion there, but we don't hear about the ministry of this man anymore. He goes into obscurity, but he's a servant of the Lord. He's a willing servant. He basically left everything in Jerusalem, and now he's found in in Caesarea and com- continues to obey and to serve there. So these are, these are the results of the gospel. We see joy in the heart of this Ethiopian. We see rejoicing. We see forgiveness. We see salvation. We see obedience. We see evangelism a burning desire to tell others about Jesus. And we see sacrifice. And when we see all of that, we we really are seeing not only the result, but the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of men and women. If we go back to Isaiah, which is all about the man of sorrows, he doesn't end the passage as a man of sorrows, as he sees the works of his heart and of his hands, he rejoices. And he receives a reward. The spoils are given to the great. And that is, of course, uh, the reality of Christ as the head of the church receiving his people because he went to the cross for them. The Lord Jesus is not the man of sorrows today. He is full of joy and rejoicing in heaven. But here on earth, he was the man of sorrows, and he was one who sacrificed everything, even his very life. And when we look at the Lord Jesus, it gives us an example of who we're to desire to be and even expect to be. There may be in this world still trials and tribulations the spirit might command us to go through his providence and through his word to places that might be hard that might be difficult that might be like wilderness would you go would you be willing
And would you go with joy in your heart? And when you go, would you continue telling others about Jesus? And until you go, are you telling others about Jesus? In some capacity or another. And beloved, even even if all you can find yourself to do is maybe find a good sermon and mail it to someone, or find how you can mail things into places like prisons, how can you maybe visit prisons? How can you maybe go and be of use to read the Bible to those who cannot read the Bible? Or visit those who are not able to go anywhere? Or to visit one neighbor and think of sharing the gospel with that lady or that man or that friend? That's what the church did. That was part of the identity of believers. And it ought to continue the identity of believers today with joy, ready to suffer, but always looking to Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for having graciously saved this Ethiopian man, for having sent the word into the far land of Ethiopia. Thy word does not contain all the all the intricacies and perhaps even millions of people who were touched by the message that this man brought to his land. But we trust, Lord, in thy mercy and in thy grace. And in the same way, Lord, thou art willing to use every single one of us. Help us, Lord, to be as Philip's in our world, in our neighborhood, in our family. Give us wisdom, Lord. As, as Philip had the wisdom to simply ask that question, give us wisdom, Lord. Put the words in our lips as we meet people, as we continue in relationships, so that we may share about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we may open our mouth and from thy word preach unto him, Jesus, unto our friends, unto our loved ones, unto strangers, Help us, Lord, to do that. We pray, Lord, also that Thou would graciously use Thy Word to save those who are lost, that they may be like the Ethiopian who heard of Jesus and believed He was the Messiah and desired the sign of the covenant to show that his sins were washed away. It showed that he believed that there was forgiveness in the death of Christ simply by believing in Christ. And may that happen, Lord, to souls who have not yet been saved today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.